Welcome. My name is Russell Atkins. For those of you who are unfamiliar, I'm filling in this morning for Tim. He's in Nashville, um, giving the keynote address to the Christian Counselors Association, where he gave the keynote address, and by all accounts, that was very well received. So we're glad the Holy Spirit is uh, attending him and his message up there. Let's bow our heads before we start. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for uh, all your blessings and keeping us safe this week. Uh, thank you for giving us yet another day in seven to come together and reflect uh, on what uh, what it means uh, for you know, to be a God of love and, and to the revelations that this day represents as regard to your character. I ask that your Holy Spirit uh, be with us today as we learn about what it is to be in unity uh, and how to better handle uh, confrontations that might exist. Please be with those of our group who are not with us this morning and bring them safely back in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to welcome those who are visiting today. If we have any visitors, I want to welcome um, those who are listening online. We are studying lesson number three, entitled The Unity of the Gospel. The memory text for Sabbath's lesson is taken from Philippians 2.2. It says... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Um, some questions here to begin with. What what exactly does it mean to be in in unity? To think these through here for a minute. Was was this was this message just simply for the first century Christian church, or can we learn something here twenty centuries later? Well, what are your thoughts? What exactly does it mean to be in unity? Unity of purpose and spirit, not necessarily um, all having the same ideas, but if we're working towards the same goal, in, in unity to that goal, we all have different talents and we all go about are uh, witnessing in different ways. Even uh, preachers. There are some preachers that reach some people and some preachers that reach other people. And we have to remember that, that there are differences in people. And um, if we're all, like I said, working towards the same goal, and, we, and if we're in unity with Christ, then we are, can be better in unity with each other. Everyone hear what she said? I think um, even in scripture it talks about um, the body and all of the different body parts, visible body parts. But I think if we think of the body even in a more micro sense, um, there are many, many, many different cells in our body. Very different function, very different, even to some degree, purpose, and yet... All of, even at a micro level, everything in my body is in unity for the purpose of my body being functional and healthy. I think that's a great analogy. Uh, there are a couple of hands over here. I think and maybe another analogy would be uh, unity and love. You know, well, you know, I love my wife dearly, and we're at unity with a lot of things, but we don't always agree. But I still love her dearly, mm-hmm. and we don't strive to to be exactly lockstep on everything. <clears throat> and I don't think that the church needs to be striving for that either. Um, you know, we're, we're unity in love, and I appreciate who she is. I and I uh, appreciate her views. I support her views every way I can. She supports mine, mm-hmm. and we're deeply in love, even though we don't see eye to eye on every little issue. So that perhaps could be. Okay, uh, this is a simple dictionary definition of unity. Uh, there, are, they give five definitions. One is the state of being one, or in other words, oneness. Number two, a whole or totality is combined, combining all its parts into one. Number three, the state or fact of being united or combined into one as of parts of a whole uh, or unification. Number four, the absence of diversity. 
unvaried or uniform character. Number five, oneness of mind, feeling, etc., as among number of persons, concord, harmony, or agreement. Now, which of these definitions do you think best fits the Godhead? Which do you think best fits Adventism? With those two questions in mind, could you read the definitions again? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got one more question. What, what do you, which definition best, do you think best fits our, our class here? A state of being one or oneness, a whole or totality combining all its parts into one, the state or fact of being united or combined into one, as in different parts uh, into a whole, the absence of diversity, unvaried or uniform character, or oneness of mind, feeling, as among number of persons, in concord, harmony, or agreement. Dr. Moses? Let's say oneness is, is the Godhead. You know, he's described as being one God. Mm-hmm. And um, you could also do the same definition of being whole, you know, three parts of Godhead being part of one whole. I think all of these definitions could apply to the Godhead. You know, they're, they're in oneness of their uniform character. They are in oneness of feeling, purpose, um, and they're in harmony with one another. Uh, and, and like you said, you know, three distinct parts of of a one, well, which does Adventism, which of these definitions best fits Seventh-day Adventism? Or is Seventh-day Adventism in unity? It's probably a better question. Not at present. <laughs> Have we ever been? No. Okay. Can we, can we turn this, can we focus the microscope a little closer. Do any of these definitions fit our class here? The first two or three fit the church and our class. I mean, not necessarily the last two or three. I can't remember which ones, but, Mm -hmm. you know, diversity. Well, we have diversity. Diversity of what, you know, opinions or what? Uh, Yeah, I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um... Yes. Do you think that if you have really healthy, fully functional human beings who are coming from each one a very unique experience, uh, very unique perceptions through their five senses and then again through their experiences, that there could ever be Perfect. Perfect unity. Okay. Um, well, it depends on what we're unified about. Yes, sir. Yeah, I feel like the Adventist Church is unified, um, not on every point, but uh, on the major points. For example, the uh, sacredness of the Sunday Sabbath and the goal to t- carry the gospel to the world. And so I guess the question would be, how, how detailed must one individual or group be mm-hmm. in order to consider unity? And my way of thinking, that is certainly adequate to consider that the church is unified. You said the major points. I think that's an interesting concept. Do you think we're all unified on the major points? Are we unified on the character of God? What are the major points? <laughs> I would consider yeah. that the major points. I would, I would consider that at the top of the list, certainly. Mm-hmm. I'd stand before you without any answers. I'd, I don't know whether we're unified or not. I have opinions, but I, I don't have any firm answers. These are, these are just questions. It's food for thought. Um, you know, with regard to our, our denomination, with regard to our class. Um, so, something to think about. Sunday's lesson, the importance of unity. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, 10-13, uh, 
this is Paul writing, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? The lesson states here that Paul is, is you know, starting to be branded as a renegade. Um, and he, he seems to just be making trouble for the church uh, establishment. And then he later accuses one of, the, one of Christ's own disciples, a, a prominent leader in the church, of hypocrisy. Um, does any of this sound familiar yet? No? Maybe? Um, the, the pink section at the bottom of, of Sunday's lesson asks, uh, what are some of the issues that threaten the unity of our church today? And... Are there any issues more important than unity? Yes. My immediate response to looking at that um, question is the church, as in the Seventh-day Adventist church, but it, it applies also to the the, the church invisible, mm-hmm. as well as our own congregation, you know, denomination. Right. And, you know, women's ordination has been a divisive issue Globally within our church, and um, yet I mean, within within our denomination or within our Christian church, both. And um, um, I think that as a group of believers, we as a denomination have been challenged, just as other cultures and other churches have been, with the the same issues, whether it be women's ordination or the character of God or, you know, mm-hmm. the belief in hell or whatever. You know, there, there's lots of, of discussion. I think we, 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 ha- we have a cessation of questions, though. There's no life. You know? In other words, if, if we stop learning or stop wanting to learn. If we stop having variances of opinion, mm-hmm. then it's because we've stopped thinking about it, and we've become dead intellectually. Okay. Uh, I, I'm inclined to agree. What, uh, how, many, how many think that when we get to heaven, um, everyone will be in, in, in unity on every, um, every aspect of God's character, every, every topic that we struggle with here? I don't either. Um, they'll have free choice to believe what we want to believe. I, I think there will be there will be some fundamental things that we'll be in unity with, but I think yeah, I the, the the concept. Let's let's talk a little bit about the concept of perfection. My understanding is the Western concept of perfection is um, a point where you actually reach is a finite point, and when once you get there. It's all done. You're perfect. The Eastern concept of perfection, which um, it, it, the Greek was written from the Eastern mindset, is that perfection is a continuum. It, it's a it's a continual. You never reach perfection. You're always traveling closer and closer to perfection, but it's never attainable. Um, I, I I tend to view unity in a similar sense that we we will all be unified with certain aspects, and you know. Uh, that are salvation important, but once we get there, we're still going to have differences of opinion, and we're still going to be learning. We're going to have to learn. There's a saying that if two people agree on absolutely everything, one of them is unnecessary. (laughs) (laughs) Did everyone hear that? (laughs) She said there's a saying that if two people absolutely agree on everything, then one of them is unnecessary, (laughs) which is I find entertaining. I've got two hands. You first, please. I think what Michael was maybe... Could you, you speak up a little bit? We, we've got people cupping their ears in the back. I think what Michael was maybe trying to lead us to a while ago is not to confuse agreement with unity. 
And I think sometimes when we get into the discussion of unity, we I just kind of automatically converge those two terms. Mm-hmm. I think that um, what's important, like Margaret was saying, if, if everybody agrees on everything, or two people agree on everything, maybe one of them's unnecessary. I think the Bible talks about us spurring each other on. That means we're constantly on that continuum. It's not that we haven't reached perfection. It's that we don't have the mind of God and we can never know everything. So we're constantly going to be challenged. We're constantly going to be have something else put on the table to consider that. And I think the important thing is unity maybe, maybe means coming to the table in humility and saying, hmm, how does that fit? What can that do for my understanding on my continuity towards better understanding? Thank you. Yes, sir. She cover it? One more. I wonder if a more critical component of unity would not be toleration. Um, for example, what came up here uh, about the uh, women's ordination. How can a church, uh, as a corporate body, be totally unified because there's always going to be some who do not agree with it? But toleration is an important consideration, I feel. I agree. Mm -hmm. Like humility and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Does it matter... Well, the, the second question in the pink section, what issues are more important than unity itself? Doesn't it matter what we're unified about? Is that, uh, does that bear a, does that have any bearing on this? A thought that I just had is that one of the greatest counterfeits to unity would be, it would happen based on force. Like you see a group of people who are all dressed the same, they're, you know, part of a military, they're all in step. You have a, and you can you can make that happen by coercion, by force. But the greatest thing to to making unity really happen is to have freedom and have a group of people who are thinking for themselves and who are heading towards truth. And then they're going to be heading towards a, a togetherness. Okay, did everyone hear that? She, she's making a distinction between unity. From a either a fear of punishment or a hope for reward uh, motivation versus unity out of uh, a freedom of choice and a freedom uh, to understand that these ways or these methods or these principles are in our best interests and we choose to we choose to live our lives in harmony with the, this uh, out of out of a, a loving cho- choice being made. Yes. You know, if the definition of unity is is unity of thought, we should be running away from that definition. We should not never strive to have unity of thought. It's 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 only it's only dangerous pit for us to to go into. Well, this was a nice segue for uh, my next. Uh, this this is from uh, when I, when I was doing some some research for this lesson today. I came across this quote from a from a Christian author. There are a thousand temptations in disguise prepared for those who have the light of truth, and the only safety for any of us is in receiving no new doctrine, no new interpretation of the scriptures of the scriptures without first submitting it to brethren of experience. Lay it before them in a humble, teachable spirit with earnest prayer, and if they see no light in it, yield to their judgment. For in the multitude of counselors there is safety. What if, what if the multitude's wrong? What if the counselors are wrong? This sounds like this is uh, telling us to, um, you know, follow the majority because their their understanding is correct. This was written by Ellen White in Five Testimonies, page two ninety three. So understanding now that uh, this is written by one of our church leaders, how do we, how do we uh, dissect this, and how do we, how do we better understand what's being said here? Yes, you're submitting it to a group of men of God, men and women of God, and 
implicit in that definition of who you're submitting it to are individuals who are led by the Spirit, who have 1 Corinthians 13 as a basis of their characters, Mm -hmm. who are open to other ideas without being challenged by those ideas. That makes that makes good sense to me. Um, where where do we find those leaders? The let's see, where are we? I I really don't think she's telling us here to submit our uh, individuality, our own thought processes, our own decision making to um to the choices and whims of others even if they are in a leadership position. Any other thoughts on this? Yes. I need to be careful how I say this, but I'll go ahead and say it now and uh, discuss it. I wish I had that filter. Uh, yeah. It implies, I think, that she would definitely imply that we don't surrender totally our complete, unthinking acceptance of it. Because she does say in another place, uh, I have no confidence in the General Conference. Of course, that's taking that right. context that's right. is the thing I want to be careful of right. you know, not be accused of. So, uh, putting these two together, obviously, I think it's obvious that she is uh, reserving some type of personal consideration of opposing viewpoints. Uh, how, how many of you thought differently of this passage when when you did not know its author? <laughs> I couldn't. Yes. If you look at how she acted, even though she had no confidence in the general conference, when they told her to go to Australia... She did so, even though in her statement she said, I, I have no indication from God that he is part of this decision. But she submitted her actual to leave the United States and go to this other place at their direction. Mm-hmm. I think that's incredible. I agree. And it wasn't a 12-hour plane ride. It was uh, two and a half months on a boat, something ridiculous like that. The reason they sent her to Australia was because she disagreed with the General Conference president and sided with the minority. Right. Well, yeah. It, so you have to take each circumstance individually. That's right. This, this is one little paragraph uh, out of uh, an enormous body of her work. Um, so I, it, just, it just struck me as interesting, though, that um, when I came across it. Let's, let's, yes. The reference five testimonies, page 293. Monday's lesson. This is um, a familiar story. This is the this is where um, Paul uh, the today Monday and Tuesday lesson are kind of combined in the same story. Paul opposes Peter um, regarding. His um, treating the Gentiles uh, differently than he had before the Jews came to visit. Um, let's let's actually just read the entirety of Galatians two. Maybe we can get a little better perspective. Um, I'll go ahead and read it. Tight on time. Then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about freedom here in a minute in Christ Jesus, and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever 
Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also in work in me as apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, and when they recognized the grace given to me, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. All they asked is we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Stop right there for a minute. We're still, here in the first century church, they're, they're still, they still have this big deal about circumcision. And uh, the Jews, by that time, had taken this outward appearance, the, this, this uh, procedure to change their outward appearance, and had elevated it to a, um, a means of salvation, essentially. And they looked down on those who did not have the same outward appearance and uh, considered them filthy, dirty, sinful, etc., etc. What, what is the big deal about circumcision, anyway? We, we, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago and maybe worth revisiting. Yes? Well, Mrs. White says they felt that salvation of any kind was only for the Jews. Right. And when the Gentiles began accepting the gospel... They felt that they must become Jews first before they could have salvation. Mm-hmm. And, and a sign of being a Jew was circumcision. Right. And they were elevating it that, you said, above keeping the law or a relationship with Christ. Mm-hmm. That was the most important thing to them. And uh, Paul was trying to say, no, Christ died for everyone. Not just the Jews, so everybody doesn't have to become a Jew before they can have salvation. Right. Uh, are there any uh, any things in Adventism that we elevate uh, above a relationship with Christ? The Sabbath. I I am inclined to agree with that. I think that we have we've done a lot of damage beating other. Um, other Christians we come in contact with, beating them over the head with the Sabbath. I think it's primarily because of a misunderstanding about our misunderstanding about the origin of the Sabbath and the purpose of the Sabbath. But I think we have, I think we've beat other churches over the head with the Sabbath. I think it's not so much an issue anymore. But when I was growing up out in the middle of nowhere, uh, jewelry yep. was the same kind of issue, and it was. Probably close to as big an issue as circumcision was. Yep. Because it was even more visible than circumcision. That's right. I think um, now, maybe um, still lingering, um, like Tim has brought up several times, smoking, Mm -hmm. use of alcohol, or whatever we hold people accountable for other than a relationship, an understanding, a desire for God. Yeah, I agree. We, we, we have come a long way on the jewelry issue, but I, I, have, I have patients in my practice that have been asked to leave class over here at the university because they have earrings in. So uh, we still have a ways to go on that one. Um. I want to read this passage again from Patriarchs and Prophets because this, this in, my, in my opinion, this is a loaded passage. If man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah, and which law is this? The law of God? The law of love, the law of giving, the law of seeking the other's best interests before your own. As given to Adam after the fall, preserved by Noah, and observed by Abraham, there would have been no necessity for the ordinance of circumcision. So, circumcision was given to the children of Israel because... Because of sin. They had abandoned the law of God. If they had kept the law of God, there would have, you can 
eliminate the middle and between the commas, if man kept the law of God, there would be no necessity for the ordinance of circumcision. And if the descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant of which circumcision was a sign, they would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary, necessary, get that, for them to suffer a life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and would not, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved on the tablets of stone. Do you guys understand that? The Ten Commandments were necessary because the children of Israel did not keep the law of God. Get your heads around that. This is, this is powerful. And had the people practiced the principles of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need for the additional directions given to Moses, the Mosaic Law, the expounding on the Ten Commandments. Yes? What passage is that? It's Patriarchs and Prophets, 364. What do you think? Yes? The, um, the Jewish, the Jewishness, or the collective um, ordinances and things that Moses instituted in the, at Sinai and thereafter made them such a unique individ, individual or group of individuals. And it was a testament. It was being used as a demonstration to those around them of who God was. Can you imagine if everyone was filled with God's love and true unity of the Spirit wouldn't that be a unique group of individuals, so unique, that it would be a testament of who God is? Absolutely. It would have its own gravitational pull. If, if, if you could, you know, thinking about that topic, that statement, that is so true. If, if the individuals in any entity would be so loving and are so unified, they wouldn't need anything else to mark them as being unique. That's right. Incredible. Something to think about. Wednesday's lesson is entitled Unity and Diversity. Sounds kind of contradictory, does it? Doesn't it? Paul talks a lot about freedom uh, in his writings in the New Testament. What exactly does it mean to be free in Jesus Christ? You guys give any thought to this? From the condemnation of the law and of sin. Are we free to do what we please? We are free to do free from fear. We are free to do what we please. Yes, we are. Absolutely. Are we free to live our lives without fear? Yes. Are we free to violate the laws of God, health, worship, love, liberty, the natural laws, etc.? Are we free to violate? Yes, we are. Are we free to violate God's law at the risk of his character of love and forgiveness changing towards us? I know, I, I, I struggle with the phrasing of that uh, in writing it. Are we free to violate God's law at the risk of his character of love and forgiveness changing towards us? No. No. If we violate God's law, his character of love and forgiveness will not change. Are we free to violate God's law without consequence? No. No, we're not. So what, what, is, what is it, exactly does it mean to be free? Is, is the drug addict free? Yes. Are they free? I mean, are they really? They're free to take drugs, but are, are they in the big picture? Is the drug addict free, or is the heroin junkie a slave to heroin? Is the drunk free? No. No. Is the obese diabetic free? Is the jealous spouse free? I hear crickets on that one. <laughs> Is the person with a distorted God concept free? No. No, they're not. So what does it mean to be free? Christ said, what did he say about freedom? Come on, y'all know this. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Yes? I think that the, we talked a little bit about fear. I think that's the big factor. 
if freedom means that fear is not a factor in your choices, um, it, it's not because of, of the fear of judgment, of condemnation, but that you're just free to make a choice without that. Or even fear of consequences. Any other thoughts on freedom? Yes, Eve. Um, I have a quote from The Desire of Ages. The only condition upon which the freedom of man is possible is that of becoming one with Christ. The truth shall make you free, and Christ is the truth. Sin can triumph only by enfeebling the mind and destroying the liberty of the soul. Subjection to God is restoration to oneself, to the true glory and dignity of man. The divine law to which we are brought in, into subjection is the law of liberty. Amen. Well said. Thank you. Ponder the concept of, of what exactly it means to be free in, cla- in, in, uh, in Christ. Ponder that this coming week. Um, the, I think it's, I think it's a, quite a, an important um, concept for us to get our heads around. Of, of what exactly does it entail to be free? Um, Paul understood that God's Paul understood the concept of God's law was not something that was legislated after sin entered this world, but it emanates from His character, and it has natural consequences for violations of the law. And that the earth and mankind were created in harmony with the law of God and functioned that way until Adam and Eve believed the lie that said, "You shall not surely die." Now, while Paul didn't understand any, anywhere near what we understand of our natural laws and, and the laws of health, he understood enough to write in Romans 1, 18-20, and we've heard this countless times, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. So he, he understood enough about nature and enough about what he observed to understand that Whatever the minimal amount that that could uh, that should be known about God has already been revealed uh, enough to adequately reveal His character has already been revealed. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so the people are without excuse. Okay, Paul got this concept two thousand years ago. We still struggle with it. Christianity today, and sadly in our own denomination, we still struggle with this idea that God's law emanates from his character versus something that he had to do. He had to enact and legislate from heaven uh, after mankind sinned. Why, why, why do we still struggle with this? Is it, is it part of our DNA already, or, or have we, or we just been indoctrinated uh, growing up with it? I'm, I, I know I've been indoctrinated with it, and it's, it's been a struggle. Satan doesn't want us to understand. It. That's right. That's correct. Um, are, are, is, is our is our church today? Are we unified in diversity? Which is the title of the lesson. Are we? Do we have a diversity of culture in our Seventh Day Adventist Church? Yes. So I yeah I I agree. I think we have. The diversity of language, diversity of cultures, uh, diversity of races, uh, I don't think that's an issue in our church. Um, we just, are we diversified in gender? To a degree, except for that women speaking in church thing. Are we in diversity, are we unified in diversity of thought, light, and wisdom? I think we're still working on that. <laughs> I agree that I think that that needs uh, needs a lot of help. Okay, Wednesday's lesson: the confrontation at Antioch. This is where Paul actually calls Peter uh, out in front of the group. Um, yeah, you know, regarding his hypocrisy and eating with some of the Jews, some of the eating with the Gentiles, except when some prominent Jews uh, came to visit. And Thursday's lesson tells us that this is actually not a problem. This is a symptom of the problem. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, my question was, could or should Paul have handled the confrontation with Peter any better? There's something very uncomfortable about him calling him out in front of everybody else, and it seems like he made a point of that. It would seem like it would have been more appropriate to do this privately. 
and attempt to to get a an understanding in a private setting as opposed to doing this publicly and going through the embarrassment uh, and probably so the, the tension that existed for everyone around watching. Right. Well, those are my thoughts as well. And, and you know, Paul later in his writings, he, he laid out those steps. You know, if, 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 you, if a brother is, you know, needs to be addressed, seek, seek him out privately. If he won't hear you, take one or two with you. If he still won't hear you, then bring it before the church. Paul went straight to before the church. On the other hand, he, he really did, did this very openly. And I, I think it probably hurt the Gentiles very much. And he, he owed them some sort of an apology, I, I would think. Dr. Moses. We read this as being a personal, he called Peter out. Yeah. But when you read the whole thing, it's Peter, Peter, uh, sorry, Peter, Barnabas, and all the other people there. So in speaking to Peter, he is speaking to a group of individuals openly. It wasn't just one individual. That's right. By this time. Okay. And so consequently, in addressing this, he is talking to Peter in an open forum. But he's not just talking to Peter. He's talking about... Peter's group, mm-hmm. okay, and I think it'd be one thing if there was if Peter had personally offended, and he was the only one who was doing the offense. And yes, I think Paul would have gone to him individually, right. taken care of it as an individual basis. He is talking to a whole group of the church who have followed Peter into a hypocrisy. Right, uh, that's a great point, and that's one that I hadn't. I hadn't picked up on. Thank you for uh, mentioning that. Yes. I, I think that's <clears throat> also a very good point. Um, but I think that um, even to address him, as he did, from my perspective, would still be a little wilting. Um, and I've always thought of, in my mind, I've always kind of put Paul up on a pedestal after his conversion. And I've always looked at Peter as kind of a ragtag, rough-around-the-edges kind of guy who finally got his act together. Mm-hmm. But I think it shows tremendous growth in Peter to have even been able to have handled that. Because you call me out in front of a group, I don't care if I've got... 15 supporters on my side, you call me by name in front of a group, it's going to be hard for me. And I also think that, as as we've discussed many times, there's not a problem with seeing that Paul grew in his character also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, not at all. And if, your, your point is a nice segue because, you know, my next you know, rhetorical question is, um, well, let me, let me back up a little bit. Um, you know, Paul himself uses some fairly pejorative language, you know, referring to the Gentiles. So, I, I, you know, if we're dealing with hypocrisy, I don't know. I mean, Galatians 2.15 says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. See, that, that sounds, that sounds um, you know, that sounds kind of inflammatory to me. But, you know, my, my, my next question was, you know, was not only could or should Paul have handled it differently, but... What can we learn from Peter's reaction to being confronted? He, he immediately recognized that he had done wrong. Right. And set about to correct it. Right, exactly. How many of us, when we're confronted, uh, take that approach? I don't. I generally brace my feet and... I'm not mistaken. How dare you? You know, that, that tends to be the approach I take. Um, we can learn a lot, I think, from Peter's, um, from Peter's response uh, to being confronted. Any other thoughts? I, I think part of the reason that, that Paul confronted him so directly and in front of the others was because in his behavior, he was misrepresenting Christ and his character and it drastically hurt the Gentiles, and now they're confused and wondering, is this, what message is this? Mm -hmm. Um, And so in confronting it openly, 
And in Peter acknowledging it openly, it gave everyone the opportunity to go, oh, this is wrong, mm-hmm. and, and this is the true character of Christ, that he's, he's open to all of us, and it's not a separatist, you're better than me kind of a thing. So I think I, that's probably why he... I, I, that's, you're dead on point, and that's, you know, that is a nice segue to Thursday's lesson. It, we talked earlier that the, the, the point of him you know, withdrawing and not eating with the Gentiles was a symptom of a, a bigger problem. And the bigger problem was the idea that the Gentiles weren't, you know, were second-rate Christians or second-rate citizens, which had been ingrained in Judaism from birth. Um, how uh, how did how did Peter's behavior actually compromise the gospel of Christ? Now, Eve has touched on this earlier. Are there any any other thoughts? How how did it compromise the gospel? Let's say that, that Paul went to Peter in private and Peter realized his mistake and then he started eating with the Gentiles unless he made a public thing to the whole group, including Barnabas and the rest of them. It would look like Paul had manipulated for the sake of this one event. Mm-hmm. And, and had downplayed it and made it a, a secondary, oh, this is not important. This is just a manipulation behind the scenes. I mean, how many times have we seen things happen in our own organizations in which things have happened and we, we suspect that it's behind-the-scenes maneuvering mm-hmm. to gain a goal which is not truly unity? Right. That's a great point. Uh, the lesson says, from Paul's perspective, Peter's behavior implied that the Gentile Christians were second-rate believers at best, and he believed that Peter's actions would place strong pressure upon the Gentiles to conform if they wanted to experience the full fellowship. Uh, and I, I think the lesson's dead on point here. Um, ask yourselves this, have we, have we treated any other group or individual as second-rate Christians? either personally or collectively as Adventists. What about smokers? Do we treat them as second-rate Christians? Maybe. What about anyone of a different language or skin color? I don't know that we treat them different as Christians, but we treat them different as Seventh-day Adventists. Okay, that's, that's an excellent point. What about uh, Sunday worshipers? about Catholics and Baptists and Presbyterians, do we treat them differently as second-rate Christians? We've been taught all our lives that we are the, mm-hmm. the remnant and we're yep. better than any, anybody else. Absolutely. We have this ingrained arrogance uh, that is instilled almost from birth. We have, we have the persecution complex because we... You know, we're, we're raised to believe that our little group is going to be the ones that are persecuted. So we, we have the, you know, a bit of that in the victimization complex. And we have this arrogance that, you know, we have the truth and we'll, we'll dole it out as you can take it. And if you, if you don't believe us, then you get to cook for as long as you need. All right, let's wrap up with Friday's lesson. Uh, just at the very at the bottom, the pink box. Uh, one of the questions, or one of the comments, at number one is: that very few people enjoy confrontation, but sometimes it's necessary. In what circumstances should a church condemn error and discipline those who refuse to accept correction? Any thoughts on this one? At what point should a church condemn error? and discipline those who refuse to accept correction. I think other people, like their influence is uh, making other people head the wrong direction, then they definitely need to be confronted. Dissension and splitting the church. Folks, we are that group right now. I mean, we, we have been that group for four or five years. It, it would be great if the church would condemn our error. Yes, yes, it would, wouldn't it? If they could find it, yeah. It would be wonderful if 
that occurred where we could sit down and they could say, this is the problem, this is what we're condemning. I think what the struggle is, is there isn't that dialogue. There isn't that. And I don't even want to use the word confrontation because it sounds negative. But I think to confront, to get in front of, to come together and put it out all on the table. I think that would be a great thing. Um, That's what we've tried to do. I'm inclined to agree. Uh, I I sat in an interesting meeting with the the church hierarchy where none of that happened. If we were the conference president. I just got a shiver. Go ahead. (laughs) And there was one of the churches in our flock went off the deep end or went in an area where we were not comfortable just like the question says, where are we going to draw the line? And call them, call them to account. You know, it's everyone is going to draw the line in a different place. I can say that. There's no, there's just no one place that line's going to be drawn. And so there's no easy answer to this, I don't believe. No, I agree. I don't have one. If I did, I'd be... Conference president. (laughs) (laughs) One more comment and we'll wrap up. Yes. Uh, I don't know that this should be the last comment. In several of these stories we we get from Paul, you know, he disagreed so violently over who should go with him on the missionary journey Mm -hmm. that he and his compatriot parted ways. Right. God used both of those individuals in subsequent journeys to strengthen the church and whatnot. Personally, as a family, we we have belonged to a church that split in half. Mm-hmm. That was one of the more painful things that I will ever go through in my life. And I don't think the scars are. I think the scars will always be there. Right. And yet, God has used um, both entities to further His work, if you want. Put it. Our true work, though, is displaying God's love to those around us, and it's it's really about unity and what unity really is, rather than uniformity or uh, cultural differences or whatever. And only when we come to the point where we are recognized for loving those around us. Does God say that we will? That others will know mm-hmm. we belong to Him. I, I think that's a a perfect summation. Thank you. All right, let's uh, let's close with a prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we um, we pray for unity, not only in our families uh, and in our uh, workplaces, in our Sabbath school, but um, in the in the entirety of Christianity. We, we pray for unity, just like you. And your Son and the Holy Spirit are in unity of thought, mind, and purpose. Um, with the, our purpose being to reveal your true character to those that we come in contact with and hasten your return. And he says things in the name of Jesus. Amen.